morning again, everybody. Good morning. Yes, you can, say, you can respond. It's actually just fine. I was alerted this morning that there are crickets in the building. Josh Eschbach told me there are crickets in the building. So if nobody laughs at my jokes, it's going to make it more awkward. So just, you can respond. You can respond as loud as you feel comfortable or maybe a little bit uncomfortable. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. Um, I'm Stephanie. I'm one of the pastors here at Mill City. We're really glad to have all of you here with us this morning. Uh, we just see it as a privilege to be able to be here in this public school and to be able to worship God freely. And so one of the things that we do every single week is take some time to pray for the school and then just pray to prepare our hearts for what God might want to say to us. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a God who leads us, who guides us, who is still speaking, who is still moving. We see you as a God who is alive and active. And we pray, God, in Jesus' name, that your presence would remain in this space. God, that your Holy Spirit would fill these hallways and fill these classrooms and that it would make a difference for the students who are coming here to learn every day. God, we pray that, that you would be um, engaging these little people who come here to learn, that you would be empowering the teachers and the faculty and the staff and the parents, God. We pray that, that any spirit of darkness that's trying to reign in a place like this would be gone in Jesus' name and that your light would fill this place. And we thank you for the privilege that we have to be uh, welcomed, to come here and to worship you in this space and to use this space right now here where we're standing and sitting and, and in the, all the rooms right now where our mini mills and our mighty mills and the mill are learning about you. We're so grateful for this opportunity. And God, we pray that this morning you would be speaking to each of us God, that you would use your word um, and that you would be uh, helping each one of us to hear from you. God, we thank you that you loved us enough to come to be with us, to be Emmanuel with us, God. And we thank you that we know that we're never alone, even if we feel like we are. And so right now, we believe that you're here with us. And that is such an amazing thing. And we thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't been with us for the last, oh, I don't know, I think we're on like six weeks, we've been having this conversation called going public, going public. And we've been talking about what it looks like for us to live as public disciples of Jesus. Because it's kind of tempting, we've recognized, I know I have, to kind of bifurcate our lives a little bit and separate, separate sometimes the, the part of us that is following Jesus from some of the spaces in which we live our lives in public. Maybe it's work, our neighborhoods, schools, etc. There's a temptation sometimes to kind of separate those things. And what we're suggesting is that's just not a healthy way to live, to separate ourselves in this way. And I think everybody's noticed that right now is a really tense time. Has anybody noticed it's kind of tense? Anybody feeling any tension? Okay. And I think we're recognizing that this conversation is worth having because of how intense it is and how much tension is coming up and what does it mean for us to be people who are living in public. Did you guys know that this election has caused so much stress that the American Psychological Association has come out with coping methods? Did you, I'm, I'm not making this up, like this is serious. People are calling it election stress disorder. I wish I was joking. They, they're even saying that now over 50% of the US population, regardless of political affiliation, is having um, election stress disorder, apparently. As if we needed another thing in that book, right? S saying what's wrong with people. So half of adults are reporting high or medium stress levels in regards to the election, regardless of political party. And so the coping methods have been released now. Focus on what you can control and not what you cannot control. Okay, there's a tip. Volunteer to do something nice for somebody else. Seems logical. 
And then this one, limit your social media and news consumption. That, start with that one. <laughs> it's kind of my, my advice, not as a psychologist, is start with that one, and that could help. So in this tense time, we've recognized that there's kind of a lot on the line when it comes to November 8th and this vote that people are going to cast, and hopefully most of us will participate because we think it's important. But can we come to, the term, to terms with the fact that though it is important that day and the actions that people will take to vote, that there are so many other ways that we live as public disciples every day and every week that are gonna have a way deeper impact on the public spheres and on society than that little bubble you're gonna fill in on November 8th. So that's the conversation we've been having. So we've looked at Jesus' life. We've looked at how he engaged in the public sphere. Jesus extended radical invitations. Jesus brought healing in public spaces and prayed that the Father would heal in public spaces. We explored how Jesus advocated for those who didn't often have a voice. We talked about how Jesus told stories of the kingdom of God and was a storyteller sharing some good news when there's often news that's not so good. And then last week, Mike talked about how Jesus was often confronting other people, but not in a way that was commonplace. So today I wanna to talk about another invitation we see Jesus extend to his followers, and that is the invitation to be different. Jesus' invitation to be different. And I wanna to suggest today that if we follow Jesus, if we join in with what we've been talking about, if we join in to Jesus' inv invitation to extend uh, and invite people and heal and advocate and tell stories and confront, if we do that, that is going to cause us to be different than the world around us and that many other people around us. We will stick out, we will stick out from the world around us. So now I wanna just clarify right up front, I'm not talking about being different just for the sake of being different. I mean, that's cool, I know some people are into that, but that is not what I'm talking about and I don't think that that's what God's invitation is at all. I don't think attention getting or trying to be the center of attention is what God's invitation is at all. You don't see that in the life of Jesus whatsoever. But for the community time question, I asked you, what is a way that you stuck out? And so maybe some of you shared a time when you felt like you stuck out from the crowd. Maybe uh, some Cubs fans went running through the streets last night screaming about the pennant, and then all the people from Minnesota were like, what about winning baseball teams? We don't know anything of the sort. You know, so like this is, you stuck out. You're going to stick out if, if you're a Cubs fan right now. We got some. Um, and maybe some of you have gone, I've known this to happen, it didn't happen to me, but you went to a costume party that you thought was a costume party and you got there and it wasn't a costume party? Yeah, it's an awkward day to be a pirate when you do that. And maybe some of you thought of your most embarrassing moment. Did anybody think of something really embarrassing? So when I was thinking about this question, I thought not of my most embarrassing moment, but my most embarrassing life stage. And... Um, I, me and my fiance have named this time in my life as my odd for God life stage. Um, I was being very odd for God. So maybe some of you had this season. Please, please, somebody else have had this season here. In your life where um, you were just odd for God, you wanted to stick out for Jesus, okay? And so this was a hard time in my life. It was during middle school. First of all, I wore soccer shorts, like umbros, like as my everyday pants, okay? I, I know different colors, and then I would wear a baggy t-shirt and I would tuck it in to the umbros, and I would wear this in this way. And so um, I, usually I was wearing a t-shirt from one of my favorite Christian bands, which of course in the early 90s was obviously DC Talk, right? Wow, a lot of DC Talk fans. Um, and so uh, check out this picture. Do you have the picture? Betsy, Betsy, put that picture up for me. Oh, there's no picture. Okay. The screen's not working. Okay, so there's this, this picture of me and my cousins. 
and we're all in a lineup wearing our DC Talk t-shirts, okay? Tucked into our shirts and out baggy and things like that. And it was just, it was a, it was a incredibly awkward time. Now, the problem was, is if I wasn't wearing my DC Talk t-shirt or one of the other Christian bands that I was a really big fan of, I was wearing like a, a Christian t-shirt. Do you guys know what I mean when I say a Christian t-shirt? My favorite one was the one that said, a breadcrumb and fish. And it was a knockoff of Abercrombie and Fitch. And it was my favorite one because my parents were boycotting Abercrombie and Fitch for being a clothing store that didn't use clothes on their models. And so we weren't allowed to wear one. But now I'm not proud of this time of my life, but there was actually this pretty easy opportunity to get these Christian t-shirts because there were these stores everywhere. There's still a couple of them that just sold a ton of really good things like Bibles and then just walls of Jesus junk. And you could just get a t-shirt, you could get a sweatshirt, you could get whatever. And most of them back in the early 90s were knockoffs of a brand like a breadcrumb and fish, right? So um, I also had one that said his way instead of subway, right? That one was cool. Uh, One of my friends had one that looked like Reese's peanut butter cup, but it said Jesus. And then it said King of Kings in there. And it said, he's so sweet on the shirt. And I had pictures of these, but the descriptions are awesome. And then my favorite one, and my cousin had this one, and it was one that looked like a Coca-Cola t-shirt from afar. But when you got close, it said, Jesus Christ in the Coca-Cola. And then underneath it, it said, his blood has been shed. Like, just think about that. You're wearing a red t-shirt that represents a beverage, okay? And it says, Jesus Christ, his blood has been shed. It just, it's kind of just gross. It just doesn't feel, it's like, Something went wrong with communion. I don't know. Like, it's just really weird. So this, these, I didn't have all of these, I just want to say. Um, but I, I, I saw all of them within my community. And I felt like at this season of my life, uh, you know, this, this made sense for me. Because if you're a Christian and you want people to know that you're a Christian, then you should wear a Christian t-shirt at all times. Okay? So I don't know if that was anybody else's. But that was what made sense to me as a 11-year-old is that if I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to stick out for Jesus, then I need to wear a really big, bright Jesus t-shirt all the time. And I really big ones that were tucked in all the time. So this was where I was going. And so I think this seems funny to look back on that. But here's where I think this is an interesting thing. Somewhere deep in the psyche of many of us, and maybe this isn't you, but for many of us, there is this embarrassment left over from the Jesus t-shirt era. Anybody have this like leftover embarrassment? And I think we can all see why that was a little bit embarrassing and had some real, real weird copyright infringement issues with the t-shirts and the things. But there's also some embarrassment having to do with the actions and behaviors of some of the Christians today and in the last few years who get all the press, right? Some of us feel embarrassed about what the headlines are that are attached to the concept of Christianity. And I would say that that's fair. But I'm afraid that the pendulum has actually swung a little bit too far away from that because of this embarrassment and because of some of these feelings about what we see in public. There's almost this desire amongst some of us to want to blend in somehow. And I want to suggest that being a public disciple of Jesus will mean that you will be different than the people around you. It's actually not an option to completely blend in. And not in like a forced t-shirt kind of way or in some sort of list of moral do's and don'ts. That's not what I'm talking about at all. But those who are making a difference for the kingdom of God, those who are following God's leadership in their life, are not going to appear as business as usual. 
they're going to stick out in the world. And I see this as a major theme in the Bible. Not just being different for the sake of being different, not being odd for God, but for the sake of the world that God loves. Being different for the sake of the kingdom of God. Following Jesus' lead will lead you to be different. Following Jesus' lead will lead you to be different. We see Jesus emphasize this all the time. I want to talk about a few examples that we see this in Jesus' life, and then we're going to dig into one story. So as you think about the, the life of Jesus, particularly his ministry, think about some of these experiences. Most people have ill will towards their enemies and want to get revenge, but Jesus says, be different. Love your enemies, even pray for them. Most people only greet those on the road who are like them and are a part of their own people, Jesus puts it. But Jesus says, be different. Don't show favoritism. Most people want all their good deeds to be shown before other people and, and everyone to notice their charity. But Jesus says, be different. Don't brag about it. The most important thing is that you know that God knows your heart and God sees what you do. Most people at this time and, and still are selfish and are afraid to lose what they have, so they store as much treasure up as possible. And Jesus says, be different, be generous, and trust that God will provide for you. Most people are anxious about life and are filled with worry about the future and what's going to happen. But Jesus says, be different. You don't have to worry because you can trust me. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and you'll have what you need. Most people put themselves in the seat of judge, judging all the people around them. And Jesus says, be different. God is the judge, and you need to only worry about your own heart and your own actions. And Jesus uses that illustration of the own speck in your eye, right? Most people are too set on their own agenda to stop when God is doing something around them. But Jesus says, be different. Follow me when I call to you. Drop everything. Make this your first priority. And Jesus lived differently too, didn't he? He treated the traitor tax collectors with dignity. He engaged women like they were humans and not property. Jesus touched lepers and he welcomed children. He invited unschooled ordinary people to be his disciples instead of the religious elite. He lived differently. I could go on and on, but I want to go further into one story that I love about Jesus that declares this difference so clearly. And it's in Luke 22, 24 through 30. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke 22, 24 through 30. As you're looking there, let me just um, set the scene for you. Imagine this scene with me. Jesus is with his disciples. He's in what's called the upper room. And later that night, he's going to be betrayed. Jesus is going to be dragged before a crooked court. He's going to be whipped and beaten, and eventually he's going to die a pretty nasty death on the cross the next day. So he's got one more meal with his friends. One more meal with these people, these men and women who have been there through crazy things for the last three years. Almost every moment they've spent together. He has washed their feet. He has served them bread and wine and said very clearly, this is my body that's going to be broken for you and my blood that's going to be shed for you. He's expressed to them this deep, deep concept, which now is still a symbolic thing that is so deep for us. And, and 2,000 years later, we still talk about Jesus washing the feet and serving the bread in the cup, and it's so deep. And in the midst of this very intense moment, what happens? Some bickering starts amongst the group. <laughs> this argument erupts amongst some of the disciples. And what are they saying? They're trying to decide who's greater, who's better than the other person. And this discussion starts going. And the disciples are getting into this dispute about who's the greatest disciple. And I think about that, and I think, 
what were you thinking? Are you kidding right now? This is no time to get into competitive banter. This isn't some sort of like first century fantasy football. Jesus is pouring out his heart to you and you're bickering about this. So this is what happens in Luke 22, verse 24 through 30. Let me read it. A dispute also arose among them to which was considered, who was considered to be the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer or covenant with you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I, I think I just love this response of Jesus, and I know why I love it. It's because he's really, really direct. And I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus isn't always that direct. Oftentimes he responds with questions or with stories. But I love this because it's one of the most direct opportunities where we see what Jesus says in responding to something that's going on. He's saying most of the leaders around you in the first century, most of the leaders around you are people who lord things over you, who it's all about power. It's all about power trips and competition and who's the best. But you are not to be like that. I love that. I love that Jesus said that somewhere. You're not supposed to be like that. You're not supposed to be like the people that are doing that. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be different, very clearly, Jesus says, in the way that I am different. Look, I'm sitting here as your servant among you. I sit here with you. I serve you. God condescending to be a human. Talk about servant leadership. He had just washed their feet. He had just expressed that he was going to give up his entire life for them. You see, in this time frame, uh, in Jesus' world, they were under the thumb of Rome, okay? The Roman leadership ruled, and very, very small amount of people had a lot, if not all, of the power. And what would happen is that they would hold on to their power by providing for other people, just a little bit. And if they could be the providers, then what could happen? They could keep all their power, because people would continue to need to come to the people who had the few people who had a lot of power, and, and you could have power because you were some who could provide for other people. And they were called benefactors, you heard in the text. But they really weren't providing for people because they cared about people. They were providing for people for two reasons. One, because it was an honor and shame-based culture, and they wanted to be publicly honored for providing for other people. And two, and probably most importantly, because if you provide for people and you're the one who has control of that, you can stay in control of people. This was the leadership that was surrounding the disciples at this time. I, I, I hear this and I think this sounds familiar to some many spaces that we find ourselves in where there's a few people who have a lot of power. And Jesus is noticing that this little bickering that's going on is because they have looked at that leadership around them and they're thinking that they're going to model that leadership after what they see around them. And Jesus says, no, you are not to be like that. We are different. You're supposed to empower other people, not power over people. And here's what the strange thing is. If you look at the book of Acts in the beginning of the church, these men and women who heard Jesus express this at that time, this idea that they should empower and not power over, they did it. They actually were different. 
They led the beginning of the church, this movement, in a way in which many were empowered instead of a few people having all the power. That's how it began. And I want to suggest that if they hadn't been different, if they hadn't expressed this, this new way of leading in the midst of a society that had leadership all about power trips, we wouldn't even be sitting here today, in my opinion, if it wasn't for the fact that they had been different than the world around them. And Jesus had called them into that. Not just for the sake of being different, but because following Jesus' lead will lead you to be different. Here's the thing. No one ever followed Jesus' lead to change the world by being just like everybody else in the world. Think about that. Difference makers must be different. It's actually kind of common sense. If we aren't different, then what are we? What's the opposite of being different? Indifferent. Indifferent. Think about that for a minute. This spiritual apathy that leads to lives that have no care for the brokenness around the world, but only the care for your own brokenness and your own self-centered life. Spiritual apathy that strips us of the joy that God offers us despite circumstances, and instead we're full of discouragement and despair and there's no hope, just like everybody else. My friend Brian wrote this book called Different, where he's talking about this concept that we're talking about this morning. And this is what he says in the book. Maybe the church is not what it could be because we have not loved our world enough to stand out in it. I'll read it again. Maybe the church is not what it could be because we have not loved our world enough to stand out in it. I'm not arguing, me, that public disciples should be different in some sort of prudish, sort of like moral elitist sort of way. I'm not arguing that at all. I'm not making a case for trying to be better than other people or appointing ourselves judges over all of culture and everybody else. I'm not advocating for some sort of cliche impression of going out on the street corner with a bullhorn or uh, storing up a bunch of food in your basement waiting for Armageddon or whatever. There's like Christian cliches. I'm not advocating any of that stuff. And I'm certainly not advocating for us to try to cover up our flaws and our brokenness. Absolutely not. It's how we engage our flaws and our brokenness in public in a watching world, not covering it up. But of course, there are so many ways, plenty of ways, that Christians have stood out that were neither loving nor redemptive. We don't have to talk about those. We all know what those are. But that reality, the fact that that's happening and some people are, are stepping out in the public sphere in ways that are not loving and are not redemptive should not like push us into like the proverbial closet about who we follow. That we have to now be like some sort of undercover Christian hoping people don't find out until they accept us for who we are before they find out. And here's why. Has there ever been a more important time in our culture, in our community, in our city, in our world, when it is more important for those who are willing to be radical for love and following Jesus as the author of love to go public? Has there ever been a more important time for the people who want to go public with the love that Jesus offers to do so? Yet there's this temptation to kind of hide it. We are to be perception shifters. This is the way I want to think about it. We are to be perception shifters about who we follow and why so that people can see when you bear the name of Jesus and you follow the leadership of God in your life, we're always asking this here, right? What is God doing and how can I respond? How can we participate with God and what God's doing in the world to bring redemption and love and truth and sacrifice and service? If we participate in that, 
that's going to shift perceptions, isn't it? If we're open about who we are. So, following Jesus' lead will lead you to be different. It's going to lead you to be different in the spaces where you have influence as a leader, like in the story here. Not lording power over people, but serving them. Following Jesus' lead will lead you to be different as a neighbor in the spaces where you live, recognizing that you have opportunities all the time to voice concerns, not just for yourself, but for all of your neighbors. Because some of your neighbors don't have the same voice. And so we have opportunities to, to follow Jesus' lead in advocating in that way. Following Jesus' lead will lead you to be different as you engage with people who are different than you. As you acknowledge privilege, as you engage in racial justice, this is different. Following Jesus' lead will lead you to be different, to be generous even when it's a sacrifice because you know that all that you have is from God. That's different. Following Jesus' lead will lead you to be different as a coworker where you'll ask your friends at work, how are you? And you actually wanna know. And you're actually gonna listen. And you're actually gonna be present and firm and continue to be there no matter what their answer is to that question. Following Jesus' lead will lead us as a community to be different in lots of significant ways. And one way that I think that we do this as a community is by saying to our community, our neighborhood, we, all of us, we see the kids in our neighborhood and our kids here at our church as all our kids, right? Some of us are, I don't have my own kids, but I have kids. The kids that come to Sheridan School here are our kids, you guys. And that's different to say, hey, listen, I'm thinking about advocating for these kids who are not my actual kids, but they are our kids. The kids who are learning right now, whether you have your own children or not, they're your kids. And it's different to engage and to embrace the responsibility that we have to them as our kids. Being different is talked about in scripture as a major theme in the Bible from cover to cover. And sometimes I think we fail to notice exactly how often this is expressed. Because there's a phrase actually that's used to define what I've been talking about this whole time. And it's this interesting phrase and this concept that I feel like there's a tendency that we have to kind of dismiss it or kind of to downplay this concept. So I've been talking about it the whole time, but I haven't actually used the phrase. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? What do I mean when I say different? What is the biblical concept that we hear throughout all of scripture? It's holiness, holiness. This is what holiness is, to be set apart for the sake of the kingdom of God. That is the basic definition of holiness. And you can't miss the, the thread of holiness and, and the way that that is a theme that is expressed over and over as what God's people are supposed to be about. But here's the thing. This phrase is not very sexy right now. <laughs> it's not something that people talk about even within Christian culture. And I think it's because holiness has been reduced to a kind of pedantic legalism. Like, uh, holiness is not drinking too much or not watching rated R movies or something like that. And it's been reduced to things like modest is hottest, you know? Some, you've heard this before, right? And it's been reduced to uh, coming up with cuss words that aren't really cuss words so that you don't cuss, like darn, right? And like H-E double hockey sticks and stuff like that. It's reduced to this concept. And I think it's a little bit funny but honestly, I actually think it's really sad. It's actually really heartbreaking to me because I think that we have cheapened and reduced one of the deepest callings that God has on our lives down to like a moral code and some legalism. Holiness is not 
a minor theme in scripture. It's like a constant refrain. The church is to be called out. The church is to be called out. The, the, the followers of God should be called out. The people of God are called out. Holiness should be a concept that we chase, not that we run from. Holiness should be something that we expand and not try to reduce in our lives. Holiness, to be set apart for the kingdom of God. Another definition of holiness would be to be different as God is different. To be different the way that God is different. To live in a way that boggles the minds of those around us, fascinates the hearts of the people that get to know you. But the only way to do this is to be more connected to Jesus than our context around us to be more connected to Jesus than the other things that beckon to connect to your heart. Because when we do this, we realize we don't have a desire to just blend in. We release the desire to blend in and to go under the radar and to be unnoticed. We resist the desire to have attention-seeking tendencies as well. But we have to accept that we're so much more deeply loved by Jesus than the type of love that any aspect of the world could ever offer us. We have to respond trusting that God is leading us. And when we respond to God, that is the best leader we could ever have. Even if it seems like that leadership is leading us towards things that might seem odd or things that are countercultural. When we follow Jesus and then sometimes begin to stick out, the truth is, is that some people are going to be drawn to that. But some people aren't going to be drawn to that. They're not gonna be drawn to that difference, to the way that we stick up for the marginalized and the way that we step into spaces and defend people and engage with some of these things. Some people won't be drawn to that, and that is okay. Turns out the goal of being Jesus follower is not for everybody to like you. It's not for everybody to love you. Some people won't. Some people won't love us. Some people won't like us. They didn't like Jesus. They killed him in public, you guys. But some people did. And it started a movement and it changed the world and it's still changing the world. Going public as a disciple of Jesus means being an extremist for love, no matter what the cost. One of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from, uh, from a Birmingham jail, he says this, the question is not whether we will be extremist, but what kind of extremist we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? I think we're called to be extremists for love. And if you're extreme, by definition, you're gonna stick out. It's gonna be different. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up and I just wanna tell one final story. I just moved into a, a new house in the Marshall Terrace neighborhood and my house, the front step, is about 100 feet from a Catholic church building. And so uh, every Saturday at four and every Sunday morning at eight, the church bells ring, right? Because the church bells are ringing to say that mass is starting. And so uh, there's no parking in front of my house at that time. And people are going in for mass when the church bells are ringing. Lately, the church bells have been ringing at other times, <laughs> like weird times, like 11.25 in the morning or uh, 1.35 in the afternoon, or at times at 11.45 p.m. The church bells are ringing. And so I thought that was weird. So I walked over to the church, and there's also a statue of Jesus, and he's standing like this. And sometimes I just give him like a high five because it just feel like, yeah, man, it's awesome. If I do like a long run, I run right by Jesus. Yeah, 
So I go behind the Jesus statue and there is the rope hanging down from the bell tower, just out there, tempting the teenagers. And I even felt like, well, I mean, you know, but they, they're gonna figure out where I live. So I didn't do that. But these bells are ringing when you least expect it because somebody's pulling the, the bells and ringing the bells. And, and in medieval times, you guys, when church bells were designed, I was thinking about this, they were originally designed to ring, to remind people to do something, and that was to pray the Lord's Prayer that God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done. And then there was another moment that the bells rang, and it wasn't the start of Mass. It was when the priest or the religious leader had prayed over the bread and the wine, declaring that Jesus' body and blood was broken and shed for you. That was the moment that the bells rang. It's like the bells were ringing to say, Jesus is here. God has come to us. God has condescended to be with you. The, 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 the spirit of God is moving in this place and, and he is not leaving us alone, even if you feel alone. King Jesus is here. The kingdom of God is among us. That's what the bells were ringing to say. And as I stood out there and I was tempted to pull that string, I looked up at the bells and I thought about this. I thought, you know, this is kind of what we're called to do to ring bells, beautiful bells in harmony that sound amazing to the ears at moments when people least expect it. Actions of love, extreme love, extreme action towards the, the, the following the, you know, on the heels of Jesus, we're racing after him. And those actions are like bells that are ringing and they're declaring to a world, Jesus is here. He hasn't left you alone. God is with us. God is the with us God. Jesus the King is reigning here. The kingdom of God is near. That's the invitation to our lives. This is what I suggest holiness looks like and sounds like. Love, not judgment. Following Jesus' lead will lead you to be different. And all we need to do is to respond to that leadership. Let's pray. Jesus, we declare that you are our leader. You are our king. We look around and we find a huge void of leadership. And that's okay because you're our leader. And we turn to you. And we ask, God, that you would continue to invite us in this, this amazing privilege that you invite us into your work in this world. You give us the opportunity to participate with you. Help us to realize that how precious that invitation is in the midst of the, the concerns and the circumstances of our lives, of which there are many, you are inviting us to participate with you. As we're gonna sing, you have called us higher. You have called us deeper into who you are. And Jesus, we wanna go where you lead us. We need courage, we need inspiration, we need uh, to, to free ourselves from indifference and embrace the difference that it means to follow you. Lead us towards your radical love and to live out of the love that we receive from you, that it comes into our life as we connect ourselves to you, Jesus, and it overflows out of our life to the people around us. Let it start with us. Let it start with us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.